The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and James Fourlines of Final Command led a track called Disciple Making Movements, New Wineskins for North America. One of their team members, Jerry Trousdale, who wrote Miraculous Movements, has written with Glenn Sunshine another book called The Kingdom Unleashed, which describes the challenges and issues of disciple-making movements for countries like those in North America. We've partnered with them to release a free sampler for this book, and you can download it for free at discipleship.org slash final command. That's discipleship.org slash final command. Now here's today's track session. Our joy has been uh, to be walking with New Harvest Ministries, these last number of years, and um, we actually partner with uh, New Harvest Ministries in sending out workers, uh, catalysts who are going from these movements that you've heard about uh, to go to uh, other countries in the Sahel region and in the Maghreb, North Africa, these areas that are predominantly, uh, and some in some cases, almost exclusively Muslim, and um, so we have been walking with uh, New Harvest for a number of years, and candidly, uh, our whole thought was that we, we are working with them to reach Muslim people groups on the continent of Africa. However, here in North America, there have been uh, churches, come on up, brother, I was filling time. Please, there's a microphone. Uh, there have been churches that have, we've actually done some disciple-making movement training in here in North America. Uh, and in the beginning, it really was the idea that these churches were uh, relatively large churches that were sending workers around the world. And so most of the time we were thinking that these workers are going to be taking these principles and going to uh, unreached and unengaged peoples around the world. But what has something that was not on our radar screen, I think it was on Shadanke's radar screen, but maybe not ours, is the possibility that the principles that are being effectively used in disciple-making movements, that those principles, what principles could be applied here in North America to see movements occurring here? I've had numerous very late night conversations with Shadanke and Bo and Sierra Leone about this. And uh, so one of the sessions that we wanted to do is to actually talk about some of the principles of disciple-making movements. Now let me just describe, um, I'll feel a little bit more at liberty to do this than Shadanke does at times, but there are... Um, from a denomination of around 10 or 12 churches in 2005, there are now close to 700,000 people in this movement. It is affecting every area of the country, uh, the military, the police force, uh, agriculture. Um, they have over 80 schools that have been started, agricultural projects across the country, access ministries. We'll talk about some of those. But there's been a significant movement what principles are there that can apply? Now, having heard Shadanke many, many times and us uh, connecting together at times 
and traveling a good bit in Africa, there are some things that he takes for granted that we understand what he's talking about. It is so intuitive with him and with the movement there. But I realized having seen a lot of this that that is not at all what I was thinking about 10 years ago. And so I wanna share with you my perspective of I wasn't thinking about this at all. And hopefully maybe even that can speak to maybe where, where you are with some of this. But um, there are, there I think six, we have six principles uh, that we kind of talked about and came up with that might be applicable. Uh, there are many more, but we only have one session. So we kind of limited this maybe to the top six as far as, um, and so number one on that list, and I know this is gonna shock you, is the essential role of prayer and fasting. Uh, but we wanted to give Shadanke a little bit of an opportunity to unpack that a little bit more. And then I want to share with you my perspective of being involved and seeing their prayer movement there, how that differed greatly from what my understanding of prayer was and my prayer life that I always, I believed in prayer. Candidly, I don't think anybody here doesn't believe in prayer, but how they are activating that and implementing that was issued brand new thoughts in my process. So Shadanke, why don't you drill down a little bit more on prayer and fasting and then we'll kind of interchange here. Um, our own understanding of prayer and fasting is abstinence from food for spiritual purpose. And um, where water is included or fluid is included, the context will tell you. You want to do it. But we know that scripture has, but we fast. Most of our fasting is without food and water. And, uh, but over the years, we built up what I really understood about abundant prayer. So every disciple that God has brought, that God has given me the opportunity to disciple, wherever they are in the world, this is something that they do. I have a disciple who was a former Muslim who has just started a church in Ohio. And I'm telling you, I was, talking, I was with him on the phone yesterday, he's just telling me how much those things have become part of his life. It don't matter where he is in the world. And so what we do, just quickly, is that we have uh, the, 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 what we call our prayer discipline or prayer path. And the first three months in every month, three days in every month, we call it a Daniel prayer. We pray, if you go back to Daniel, you read the book of Daniel, from Daniel chapter 9, you see how much Daniel was really praying and fasting and trying to hear from God about the restoration. And so we, we have this first three days in every month where we do Daniel prayer. And I'm telling you, you will be surprised to see hundreds of people fasting and praying. I mean, this is literally just the truth. In every place. And then we have our weekly fasting every week. In some areas it's Thursdays, other areas it's Wednesday. Every week. We call it a power night. We pray and fast. And we come together to, to pray. We pray all throughout the day. And then we come together late in the evening to, to pray again together. And just as James is saying, honestly there are some things 
we feel a little bit, we just think it's part of it when we're shy, more or less to say it. But we record everything. We, we keep a, a record from the small churches we have. They have record books where they write. Every record we're talking about is there. And we have seen how God has used ordinary people to do great things. One of those ordinary people is here. You know, um, he's also leading the final command work, Joseph. You know, how God has used him. God has used ordinary, ordinary people. And so we have situations like that. So the next thing we also do, we have half-night prayers and whole-night prayers. A half-night prayer is simply a prayer that starts from 8 p.m. and ends by 12 p.m. We call it half-night prayer. And then we have a whole-night prayer that starts from 10 p.m. to 6 in the morning. And when I talk, we have groups of people in every area that do this consistently. Then we also have what we call um, open heaven, which is like the last day in the month. The last day in the month. It starts from 11 to 12. Or you can start 11.30 to 12. Open heaven simply is to encourage family members with your family. In Africa, you know, it's not like here. We have compounds. You can come out. But if you can't come out, we say, you and your family in your living room, or if there are other family members close by, you can invite them who are part of the movement, and you people can pray. First, always our prayer is always thanking God first. So we had to open every prayer. The next thing we do is that the last three days of every year, we also pray. This is what we call, it's our Esther fasting prayer. That means our leaders come together and will pray without food and water for three days. Seeking the face of God, for, thanking God for the year, and then committing what is going to happen in the other year to God. Then we have the 21 days prayer time that would happens in January. Most times by the middle of January to early February, 21 days, we pray and we fast. And as we pray and fast, we are praying for the move of God especially. Because we know that if God don't draw people to himself, they're not going to come. So we pray for that. We pray for God to go and open doors in communities, in tribes, in towns, in villages. Because when God opens the door, nobody closes it. But when he closes the door, nobody opens. We ask God to open doors. We also pray that God will protect the church planters and the missionaries that are out in the field. Because most of them come against a lot of attack, opposition. Many of them come close to the point of being, being killed. My brother who is here, Joseph, he was shot in the leg with bullets and the bullets came out without touching his bones. So you pray for that type of protection. That the Lord will protect the missionaries, the church planters in the field. We also pray that the Lord will help us discover the presence of peace. You know, persons of peace are simply people who are the bridges to get you into communities. They have spiritual influence and they also will have just natural influence in their communities. So we pray that God will reveal the person of peace as the people go, on, go in. We also pray for God's provision that the Lord will provide for his work. Because he says, the cattle on the 10,000 hills belongs to God. The gold and the silver belongs to God. 
So we pray for his provision that God will provide for his work. And we also pray for all our partners, wherever they are in the world. At times we'll name them, we'll pray for them, ask for covering for what they're doing, their own ministries, their own jobs. You know, we'll pray for their families, that the Lord will cover. And we have a lot of other people that normally send prayer requests for us around the world. I will tell you that we have received prayer requests from people who they have diagnosed with stage four cancers in this nation. And we mobilize people to pray and fast for them. They don't know them. Some of them will only send their pictures to me and I will dispute the prayer points. And I will tell you their testimonies, how God has miraculously cured them. So we do all these prayers and there are times people will pray for their own prayer points. If you have family prayer points and they pray. We also have um, what we call victory weekends. Victory weekends are simply, you know, when people come, especially from the Muslim background or from African traditional religion background, they come with baggages. They come with a lot of baggages. You know, some of them have made covenants with very strong hold. So, you know, we, victory weekends, we bring them in different places and we pray and we pray prayer of deliverance on them that the Lord will deliver them and set them free. And we have seen, we have recorded cases of people who have been delivered, you know, from the power of the enemy. And, and just to backtrack a little bit, one of the things we also pray for is that God will bind a strong man in communities. Jesus said, you can't enter into the house of a strong man except you bind the strong man first. And we believe literally that that binding of strong man only comes through prayer and fasting. So we ask God, every traditional spirit, every ancestral spirit in those communities, religious spirit, whatever spirit it is, every legal ground, you see there are areas where the enemy has the right to be there because their forefathers made covenant with the devil. So he has right to be there. So we pray that God break all these legal grounds. So those are the, the, the prayers we have, personal prayers. We have other corporate prayers that we do. But that's just a summary of some of the... Let me give a testimony uh, about when they're talking about prayer. This may resonate with you or, or it may not, but prayer... Uh, when they are praying, they are believing that God is working somewhere... And that through prayer, God will speak to them. Um, and, and they believe that in that process of time, God is going to direct them about where to go, which villages to go to, when the time is right. Uh, they will send intercessors in before they ever would send any person to try to do church planting. They would send intercessors in and they will not try to start planting until the intercessors say that the spirit has been broken. They sense that the strong man has been bound. And God is working and God will direct them to these people of peace. And in just a moment, I, I, I want for Shadanke to unpack what, what that means with person of peace. But in my experience, I've always prayed Prayer to me, and I really, even when I was in my early ministry, I was in, a, in, in pastoral ministry, and I, 
I knew that we ought to pray, but I wasn't really sure how prayer worked. I, I didn't know, you know, if I prayed, maybe that was kind of like balancing scales and it would tip the balances a little bit. If I could get you all to pray with me, maybe it'd tip a little bit more. If I'd get a bunch of people on Facebook or something to pray with me, maybe it would tip the balances in a way in which it would cause God to move. That's not how they are praying. They are praying, believing that God wants to speak to them. And as they are interceding, God does speak to them. Now, we have a lot of illustrations from Africa. What we are in desperate need of is illustrations from the U.S. So let me share one with you because I don't want it just to be African illustrations. A friend of mine pastors in Bowling Green, Kentucky, not too far from here. His name is Dave. As far as I know, Dave never talked to a Muslim in his life. I doubt anybody in his church, it's a relatively small church, maybe 150, 200 people. I don't think any person in Dave's church had ever spoken to a Muslim in their life. But Dave loves me, was kind of interested in what was happening, working in, uh, with uh, this ministry and others in, in, in Africa among Muslim people groups. So he had me come and I shared with them, I said, just if you don't do anything else, pray. Make it a strong habit to pray every day for Muslim peoples. So about six months to a year later, I get a call on a Sunday afternoon from Dave. He goes, James, James, James. Let me tell you what happened at church this morning. And it was the kind of desperation that, you know, I thought maybe the church voted him out, you know, and I said, Dave, what happened? He goes, an older woman came into church five minutes till 11. She had a younger guy with her after their service ends at 11, starts around 945, ends at 11, had a younger man with her. After the service, they wanted to speak to the pastor. Now, if you've been in pastoral ministry, you know that most of the time it means that people need money. He said, James, they didn't ask for any money. It was a woman who had just moved to Bowling Green from Iraq. She was an Arab Muslim. She was with the young man because she spoke Arabic and the young man was her interpreter. So she sits down with Dave and says, I had a dream of Jesus. Jesus, this is Bowling Green, Kentucky. This is not Africa. This is Bowling Green, Kentucky. Jesus appeared to me in my dream. He was holding a candle out and he looked at me and he said, find someone to tell you about the light. She woke up, she talked with her Iraqi sisters and said, what should I do? They counseled her. You need to go to a Christian church. They understand about Jesus. And they said their services usually begin at 11 o'clock. So when she got there at five minutes to 11, she thought she was early. She didn't know she was right at the end. And so she asked Dave, what does it mean for Jesus to say, find someone to tell you about the light? He said, James, I didn't know what to tell her. I said, Dave, what did you tell her? He said, I told her that Jesus loved you enough that he came into your dream to tell you, to find someone to tell you about the light. He is the light. 
He is the light and he is calling you. And he's doing this through Arabic interpreter. Listen, of all of the churches in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and she drove by several of them to come to that church and she thought she was coming to a Catholic church. If we seriously pray and seek the face of God, that's when he does things that there's no other explanation than the hand of Almighty God. When they're praying and when they're fasting, they're expecting that God is going to intervene and he is going to do something. So it is a little different than the idea of let's try to get enough people praying that'll cause God to do something. No, they're praying to see God work and to see God act. It is a little different. So I don't know if you want to wrap up on that or yes. talk about it. I think it, what um, James has said is just exactly what we do. We, when we pray for communities, we pray for tribes, we believe God will speak to us to go there. We already know the Great Commission, but the, at the same time, we know that if God don't go ahead of us, it's going to be a wasting of time and energy. But when God goes ahead of you, the work is almost done. Because he begins to connect you with people you never expected in your life. You begin to see people respond that you never thought would respond. So we are always, that is why when we pray and seek his face, we are always asking God, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? We want to move in obedience with God. And we have seen it over and over and over again in communities. For example, there's a community that I was praying. I was in a retreat alone. And I do a lot of that. I take some time away, just go for a retreat. Or there are times I will shut myself in, in the room. My wife knows. I tell my wife for the next three days, I just want to be alone with the Lord. And um, so I was praying. That community was not on my radar. I was not even thinking about them because it's a difficult community, so I was not thinking about them. And then while I was praying, as I prayed and I was waiting on the Lord, worshiping God, and the Lord impressed in my heart that I want you to go to that community. I want you to get people to go to that community. The community is called Gondama. It's about 12 miles away from Bo. Well, I know all the story about this community how missionaries have gone there and what happened to them, what happened to their family, and people back off. And I said, God, you, you, I don't think you mean it. You mean Gundama? You know the story of Gundama. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, when the Ananas was sent to go and talk to Saul, <laughs> and he said, God, but you, are you the only one in town, God, that you don't know the story of Saul? He's killing Christians. <laughs> but the Lord impressed my heart to go. So, I want to thank God for the leaders God has given me. And you know, thank God Joseph is here. He's one of those key leaders, very obedient, willing to go. So, okay, we prayed about it. And then I got some people to go to Gundama. We got, went to Gundama. Even the guys that went to everybody, we prayed. But that, you know, faith is not the absence of fear. <laughs> you can have faith and you still have some fear. So we got to the community. And we were finding ways to get to talk to the people. We realized that, you know, most Muslims, they, like, they love to see movies, you know. So we decided, okay, we'll use a movie that will draw them. Just as we have fixed everything, there was, the rain got dark. Heavy wind started to blow. 
And some of the people that have come to watch this movie started to go back. I'm standing there in my heart. I said, God, that's why I did not want to come. And all of a sudden, some boldness came into me. I took the mic and I said, I know you are seeing the rain is dark, the place is dark. You are thinking because it was an open place. I said, but I want to promise you that this rain will not rain until we finish what we are doing here. Today you will know that there is a God in heaven. Honestly, I don't know what came over me. (laughs) To be very honest. You know, that's what I said. The place was dark. And then I told the guys, let's begin. And we started and people came. We went through all that movie and we used it to illustrate the love of God to the people. People the other day, when we finished, we packed everything. As we are leaving the town, there's a bridge you have to cross. Just as we cross the bridge, heavy rain fall down. Pouring down thunder, lightning. The other day, we baptized 71 adults. And because of that today, there are churches around that community. The community opened up. We have a, a school there in that community. They gave us, the people gave us a school building with a four-acre land. This land is owned by Muslims. They gave it. So when God, when we fast and pray, when the Lord, you know, touches our heart to go, even when many times it don't make any sense to us. But we have been in the business so much to learn that you don't need to understand God. I tell people, when God calls you, he's not asking for your opinion. He's asking for your obedience. He don't ask you for your opinion. What do you think about this? No, he's asking for your obedience. And this is, um, as they are praying, honestly, almost everything that they pray is, uh, is started off with some scripture. Very, very common as they they claim some scripture, and um, somehow, and I think he alluded to this during his his address that we we have a tendency to water down things and not necessarily take them as they're stated. But but Paul did pray that we would have the the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of that mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And the actual thing is they believe it. And as they seek God, they act on it. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think to him be glory. They actually believe it, but we have to move on to other lessons uh, because there are, there are several that I'd I'd love to share. And, And this one is one of the more powerful, certainly prayer and fasting is, but number two, it is God uses ordinary people who obey him. God uses ordinary people to obey him. I want to set this up with something that happened in Sierra Leone just three weeks ago when we were there. Um, There was people from Arab Baptist Theological Seminary in Beirut who had been hearing what's happening uh, among Muslim people groups. And so they came 
uh, to see what was happening there. So one of the things that they did is to have uh, some people to give a testimony. We can't travel all over the country. It's just too far. Um, Kabbalah is a long way. Uh, So we we can't go everywhere. Uh, So they brought some people in to give testimonies. And a guy was there who a year earlier was a drug dealer with a small cartel of young guys underneath a bridge. Somebody from New Harvest, and I think it was a woman, but I'm not sure, in praying and fasting, God called her to go and speak to the guy under the bridge, the drug dealer under the bridge with a cartel around him. Whoever it was, man or woman, I'm not sure, they came, the person who's telling me this is the drug dealer who's come to faith. He's the one who is sharing his testimony. Um, Whoever this was, it was an ordinary person, Mm -hmm. not someone who had any advanced training, but someone who was trusting in the power of God. They came and spoke to this man and all of the young guys around were laughing this person to scorn, except the drug dealer, the head of it all. He said that as this person was speaking, God had already been working in him and he said, no, I wanna hear what they have to say. All right, so this ordinary person shared with this drug dealer, arranged to start a discovery Bible study with him and a few of his friends and he says from his own mouth, he said, when someone teaches you something, you can learn But when you discover something for yourself from the word of God, that never leaves you. So here he was, a drug dealer under a bridge in a discovery study, hearing from the word of God and the Holy Spirit of God, he came to faith. Now he's a church planter. Now here's the thing that dawned on me. However we hear biblical truth, whatever the means of us hearing biblical truth That is a message in itself. Most of us, the way we have heard biblical truth is from a pulpit or in a class or a small group with a very highly trained leader. And if it was somebody from the pulpit, they usually were highly trained. They knew, maybe they knew biblical languages. Maybe they knew a whole lot about apologetics. At many times, they were an incredibly gifted speaker. And so what happens is, When I look, if if I'm in the back here and I'm looking at whoever's saying something up here, I admire that. I I honor that. I thank God for that. But 99.9% of people who are sitting in these, they never think they could do this. So they come to the conclusion, they come to the conclusion that their role is to sit and support this and give money to this and invite people to perhaps come to listen to this, but the idea that they could go out there and do it themselves is the furthest thing from their mind. The means that they heard the gospel, the means that they got biblical truth, they can't replicate. But this woman or whoever it was that went under the bridge had no training. 
They were following in obedience to God and they had prayed and fasted. And this drug dealer, when he saw what was happening with her and how she led them through a discovery Bible study and they were hearing directly from God, you know what he said? I can do that. Now, he is doing that. Do you know what happens to all of the people who hear him? If the drug dealer under the bridge can do it, I can do that. And thousands and thousands and thousands of ordinary people in Sierra Leone are doing that. That is such a huge thing. Now, tell us how that happens because this brother enables them and cheers them on. So anyway, <laughs> sorry, my brother. It's okay. I got that. <laughs> He said it all. But the, the, the truth is that there's so many people in our churches today who have the capacity and the capability by the power of the Holy Spirit with good coaching and discipleship. They can do it. They just need encouragement from us. We give them confidence. And we give them the opportunity and I normally say to people, maybe when they begin, they will fail in some areas. I don't know of any child, especially in Africa, the context I know more, of any child who ever tried to walk without falling. Falling is part of the game of walking. So in our trainings and coaching, failure is part of the process. It doesn't mean because you fail with one or two groups, we still encourage you that you can do it. So we have ordinary people. And you know, we have, we, people have visited from very critical mindset. When I say critical mindset, very critical mindset, very theological mindset, people with big churches. And at the end of the day, I've seen some of them weep. Even this, the team that just left, one of the guys from Lebanon, he's a professor in a, in a, in a seminary in Lebanon. He never believed that this will happen. I know his emails that he has sent to me. So we have ordinary people. We have people who are blind, physically blind. We have them doing discovery Bible studies. They are coaching and discipling people who see physically. We have people who never went to school. My mother is an example. My mother was a Muslim. Never went to school. But when my mother got saved through what God was doing through me, she asked me, what can I do to help you, to support you in what you are doing? She said, you know, I, I did not go to school. I coached my mother. I discipled her to pray. And I want you to know my mother has brought more Muslim women to the faith than any other woman I know. My mother can quote scriptures and explain scriptures. She has discipleship groups. She has discipled people who are first degree and second degree. She never went to school. And there are many of them who are doing this. Why? We spend time to coach them. We spend time to disciple them. We coach them and we say, find somebody and do it to the person. They go and do it, they come back. In everything we do, there's inbuilt accountability and reporting. For me, you know, I have my, 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 my father here, I normally say, no report, <laughs> no other training. 
we need to get the feedback. When Jesus sent his disciples, they went out the seventy two. When they came back, they reported to him. So we inbuilt a report accountability process. If you are not willing for that, we say thank you, we'll bless you, we'll release you. And I tell you, each of these people have made disciples that have made disciples. They planted churches in communities. Some of those churches are growing and multiplying themselves. Just ordinary people. I'll tell you one illustration. We were doing a, half, a whole night prayer, one of our whole night prayer. And while we were praying, as we say, we pray and we listen to God. God can do anything. I started to feel the, the nudge to go back to the house, to check at the house, at my house. Well, I'm praying, I said, Lord, but I, I closed the door. Everything is, but I kept on feeling, go to the house, go to the house. So I left the team praying, and I, my house was very close to the church at that time, so I went to the house. The very doors that I, I locked the, the doors, I was the one who locked every door. The doors were widely open. And I said, I have the key. How come? Did I forget to lock the door? There was a man inside the house who was a thief. We call them night carpenters. While we were praying, he said, these people are busy praying. Let me also be busy going into their homes and taking what I need to take. So he was packing things. He had already packed some few bundles. And I asked in Creole, who that standing? That means who is that? He answered confidently, not me. That means it is me. So I'm thinking, I don't have this kind of voice in my house. Then I realized the thief. So I shouted, you know, and that's what we do. Thief, thief. And all the people came from the church. And then we held him. The normal thing people would do is to beat you. They would just beat you or take you to the police. But even taking you to the police, they will be beating you on the road while they are taking you. <laughs> so I told the guys, oh, don't beat him, please. Let's take him to the church. Let's spend time praying. That was around about three in the morning. So we took this thief in the church. I said, sit down. Pray with us. So we were praying. You know, I had these young men who are today grown up. These young men, while we are praying, I'm looking at the direction of the thief. You know, they were young. They are going around the thief and they are saying, you wait for us after this prayer. <laughs> you wait. That means we are going to flog you after the prayer. So when I realized that by 5 in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, the prayer ends normally by 6, I took the thief, took him to my room, and I told him, sit here, and I locked the door. I went back, we finished the prayer. After the prayer, everybody said, where's the thief? Where's the thief? I said, oh, I've released him. He's gone. He's gone. He said, ah, you should have allowed us. I said, how can you pray and come and beat a thief? <laughs> I gave him, I prepared breakfast for him, and I gave him breakfast. I said, eat. He ate. Sat down for about hours. By 12 midday, when everybody had gone, I said, let's go to your house. I'm going to accompany you. I followed him to his house. This man was staying like two streets after my own street. We were in the same area. I did not know him, of course. We got to his house. He had a wife and children. He introduced me to his wife. He said, this is my friend. Well, I, yeah, I said, I shook the hand of the woman. I sat down. But when I looked around this environment, I saw abject poverty. So in my mind, I said, maybe this is the situation that led this man to do what he has done. 
So I took money from my pocket. I gave the wife to buy a bag of rice and gave you some money for condiments. I said, go to the market, buy, have some food to eat. You know, in Africa, when people visit you, you accompany them. And then they will accompany you halfway. It's just part of the African culture, especially in Sierra Leone. So he came halfway again with me, and then he left. The summary is that later we became friends, very close friends. Started coming for Discovery Bible Studies. And with time, he gave his life, he and his family, to Jesus. And he was baptized. He kept on coming to the church. We gave him a lot of clothes and gave the wife a lot of clothes. One day he told me, I want to go to Kono, the east. I want to dig, go and dig some diamonds. I said, okay. So I helped him what I could help him, and I prayed for him, and he left. Six months after that, he wrote me a letter from Kono, another district. He said, I came to Kono so that I would get some diamonds and make some money. He said, but for some reason, I keep on thinking about you and what you did for me. He said, I want to become a follower of Jesus like you. Can you help me? I said, of course. So that's how I started discipling him. Nobody knew in the movement that this was the thief that we caught. Until God transformed him. Today he's based in Kono. He has a church in Kono. But he has planted several churches also. But where did he start? We met because he came as a thief. And during that prayer, God spoke to me to go out and meet him. So what I'm saying is that to... Ordinary people, this man is just an ordinary man. But today, he has influence of leaders under him. There's so many ordinary people who are doing extraordinary job. A pastor from Chicago went to visit me. And as we went to the villages, he's asking them some questions. Every now and then, people will ask him, this thing you are saying, is it, where is it in the Bible? But what does the Bible say about this? And he came back and said, Shudanke, I traveled all the way from America with all my masters in theology to be challenged by common people to challenge my theology. He said, my life will never be the same again. As we transition to the third um, lesson, train, release, and trust God, I want to ask Shudanke a question. Um, when people are disciple makers... They disciple others, and, and as a result, they end up, churches end up forming as a result of that. Um, and uh, you're saying that ordinary men, ordinary women are disciple makers who make other disciples, groups gather, and churches are formed, and that's happening all over Sierra Leone, and then I have a follow-up. So that is, that is how that's happening. Yep. Okay. As this group, everyone is a disciple maker. The one thing that you'll find if you go is if a person is a teacher, if they're a farmer, if they're in the military, if they're a policeman or policewoman, everyone is a disciple maker. And therefore they end up being church planters. Not only are they planting a church, but once this group is planted, then they're always asking who else needs to hear this story, everyone in this discovery group. And then that ends up planting another church. This ends up becoming the second generation church. Now, the question that I have for you is to what generation are you tracking church planting in Sierra Leone now? 22 generations. 
22 generations. This church planted a church, planted a church, planted a church, planted a church. And by the way, this church may have planted several down to 22 generations. Now, what often happens when people think about that is they think somehow that this is now out of control. It has lost its center. No one knows what's happening in this. Everything is just so out of control. It's gone so viral that there's no control over it. But this says train, release, and trust God. How do you respond to people who say, listen, if you've got 22 generations of churches planted, you have no idea what's going on. Uh, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I've been asked that question wherever I go. You know, how do you make sure there's contract? How do you make sure there's quality? How do you make sure there's no error? Well, for me, I tell people, Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all tribes. Think about that. If you're going to make disciples of all tribes, the one thing that we need to know is that we need to trust God that this business is God's business. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about God. And so we train for us. Training is ongoing. We are always involved in training and discipleship. Always. We are always training people and coaching them and discipling them. But I want you to know we have apparatus that we put in place to make sure we check errors. We check that there's no, the whole process is not derailed into another thing. And one of the things we have is reporting system. We have an inbuilt reporting system. You know, Jerry is here. Jerry knows what I'm talking about. He receives our reports. I mean, we have records from the very first group that is started. We'll be, we'll, that group will tell you who the person of peace was when they went to that community. The name and then the religious background. Because we have this, we have MBBs, Muslim background believers. Because if we want to talk in quotes, so that other people don't understand our language, we just talk in quotes. How many MBBs you have? Somebody would think we're talking about degrees. It simply means Muslim background believers. We also have people we say from, people that come from African ATR, African traditional religion background. And then we have those we say rededicated Christian. That means people, maybe they went to church before, but for years they have not been going to church any longer. So we have all these categories. Now the issue here is that we have leaders at every zone. A zone can be like five or six churches within a zone. There's a leadership team in that zone. The role of that leadership team is to coach, is to encourage, is to um, course correct, is to raise the bar for them so that they can do more, is to pray with them. And then, above the zone, we have area leadership team. An area we cover maybe like, some of them will have like six zones or ten zones under the area. And there's a leadership team for that. So each zonal leader become part of the area leadership team. So they are reporting to the area leader and the area leader is doing the same thing that the zonal leader is doing, but he's doing it for the area. He's coaching, he's encouraging, he's course correcting, he's raising the bar for them, he's praying and fasting for them. If there's any communication within the movement, they receive it and they send it to the grassroots level. And then we have districts. 
leadership team. A district leadership team may have maybe 20 or 30 area leaders under them. And there's a leadership team. And these are all lay people, apart from maybe the guy who is heading. These are all lay people. Some of them, we have people who, are, who work in the bank. They are bankers. They are part of the leadership team. We have some lawyers as part of leadership teams. We have some police. But these are all disciple makers. And those leadership teams meet at least once a month. At least once a month. And if it's a country, we have country leadership team. Then we have a senior leadership team, which I am part of the senior leadership team, where we look at everything that is happening. We look at best practices. What is working and what is not working. And so with this, we realize that we are able, to, if there's any error, and for example, in our reporting system, we even have a room where we ask, how many churches we have planted? Maybe you say four. How many died? We record all of that. So if we see more churches dying in an area, then we want to find out why. Why is this happening? And there are times it's because of persecution. There are times it happens because maybe the leadership in that particular area is isolated and needs some encouragement. So we check all of that. And so we do consistent training and coaching and mentoring and the fact here is that there are so many churches and people that have been trained and coached at area level, zonal leader, I even, they don't know me. Some of them have heard about me, they don't know me. For mm -hmm. us, it is high impact, low visibility. High impact, low visibility. So I will come to a fellowship, I will sit at the back, and there are times nobody knows me in that nobody. Because it's not about me, it's about him. Yeah, this and interpreting this and honestly as people are praying and some of you who are involved in uh, local church really uh, praying and seeing how God is going to contextualize this to our context uh, I think one of the basic principles is that they have released people they've trained them they've released them and then as a result of that, they continue to track and work with them, but they've released them, not necessarily to come back to this church that, that started it. They are, it's centrifugal, it's always pushing out. And I think that's one of the principles that is going to have to be found out here. How does that work here? Now, one of the things I would say is because in some sense, Shadanke in 2005, uh, he was the head of a ministry that had 10 to 12 churches. They were planting churches in a traditional mo model, church buildings, trained clergy, and so forth. And 2005 was the year that they made the switch. He released control and gained influence. I think that's a huge thing because I have been with him. We have traveled a number of places. I never go to the same place whenever we bring a group. We're always going to somewhere new. And we, we go away to Kabbalah across the, uh, a long, long way away. And we're in an agricultural project that is there. And no one has introduced themselves. We've got these guys with us and we're talking about this and everybody's interested. And uh, until at the very end, we, they say, well, who are you? And we start to introduce ourselves. And, uh, and he says, I'm Shadanke Johnson. He usually gives his full name as he did um, uh, but I'm Shadonke Johnson. And 
the people there, their mouths dropped because they've heard there was a guy named Shadonke Johnson, but they never knew who he was. That happens all across Sierra Leone because his influence has gone because he released and released control and let influence grow. I think that is very, very important. Um, and by the way, in praying about this, as we are, as our organization is praying, what does this look like in North America? Because that's something that was new for us, that maybe there is something for North America with these movements. Uh, we're praying with a lot of people right now, a lot of churches, a lot of church leaders who are saying, how does this look in this context? So uh, we would love, if you're going to be involved in this or you have interest in it, please let us know. Uh, we want to get at least one more. Uh, we may not get them all, but number four is develop uncompromising priorities. Now, this is something uh, I'll just mention and then once again turn it over to, to Shadanke for comment. What I have noticed in my own experience in training and also what I have experienced mainly in the cultural context we're in is we, we do everything up front and then afterwards we hope that results will follow. In other words, if you feel called of God to uh, reach Muslim people somewhere in the world, we will train you for five, six, seven, eight years. We may give you a master's degree in Islamic studies, but you've never discipled a Muslim. We do it all up front. If somebody wants to go into ministry, bless God, we're going to send them to Bible college or seminary and we're going to get all this training, but they never have actually discipled anyone themselves. And in many cases, they have never been discipled. And when people hear about disciple-making movements, sometimes they hear the wrong things. They hear that disciple-making movements is opposed to formal biblical and theological education. They hear that disciple-making movements are opposed to buildings. They hear that disciple-making movements are opposed to developing a strategic plan. Here's what I think what Shadake is saying and, and trying to make it applicable to us. There's some uncompromising priorities, and that is you start working and seeing things discipled. You're discipling people. When you start seeing six, eight churches being planted, they tap you on the shoulder and they go, you need some training. And then if you start seeing second and third generation, now you've got 20, 30, 40, 50 churches under you, they go, you need some formal training. And then whenever they will start crossing different cultures and they start, and our brother here, Joseph Caroma, is an example of that as he was changing to different cultures. Then they go, you need some cross-cultural training. So he got his master's degree in cross-cultural communication at at West Africa Theological Seminary in Lagos. Not opposed to that at all, but it's the priority. You're involved as a disciple maker and then you get training, all right? You don't build a building and hope they come. You start seeing movements and those movements themselves decide what they want to do. If they want to have a building, then they build one. And there are many, many, many when I took the guys from Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, they were amazed at how many buildings they saw because they thought they were going to go see something that was amorphous. They're not opposed to strategic plans if you get the strategic plan after you've prayed and fasted. That's the difference. It's the priority of how you do that. And in many ways, what they've done is they've flipped the script on each one of these and that is what is facilitating movements. 
Is that yeah. a fair analysis? That's a fair analysis. I mean, it's um, all throughout the movement. We have people, a lot of people have thought that we have a lot of people with masters now, but I tell you those people, maybe five years, 10 years before or 20, they had nothing. Common people, ordinary people. Some of them were carpenters in the village, farmers, fishermen. But as they're involved in the process and their influence is growing, the more we give them training, equip them, expose them to other training. And the more they have influences at national level, at intercontinental level. We have people today in different countries, they are training so many other missionaries across. But we make sure we don't, that is not what we start with. As we continue to do, we have buildings. You know, I was, from the very first day I told people, there's nothing wrong with somebody building a building, but you can't build the building and want the people to come in. You begin to disciple the people because building is a byproduct of a growing church. When people are mature, they'll say, oh, we want a building. Great. But we can't do the building first. In fact, all, every area we started church, the only thing we normally, we pray for the people, we do a lot of prayer, we'll bless you. Maybe we'll help you some money to buy food. And they will give you the Bible. Because for us, we believe it is the Bible and the Holy Spirit that you need. If you have that, the rest, God will take care of it. And we have seen people go to communities. I went to the north of Sierra Leone. I'm a Creole by tribe. My mother is a Shabro from the islands. I went to the north. I don't speak the language at all. No timini, no limba, no loco, none. But when God impressed in my heart to go, I went. And I want you to know, I met Joseph in the north. I have so many disciples that we have from the north. So many other workers and partners in the north. But I want you to know, as I was in the north, I normally say I'm an accidental missionary. God started to reveal things and I just obeyed the Lord. And God did a lot of things there. And we have seen. So it's a matter of let me pray and let God lead this process. I don't know if God can lead you to have a very big building. He can lead, for example, we have a college. I tell people we never thought of a college on its own. When the leaders started to become so many, we said, okay, let's have a way to be training them. So we started with just a simple training thing. And then later, some pastors who are not part of our ministry came, you know, we can make this a training institute. We say, great. It was all about discipleship. And then you know what? It came to a point, the government, we are accredited by the government. They have an accrediting council. They accredited us. Today, we have people doing certificate, diploma, and first degree from that place. That was not our intention. We even don't have a building. We're using classrooms. Joe has helped in that school. He's still helping there. So what I'm saying is that if we put first and first, it's going to be very different. That's what happened in Acts. There was no Jerusalem council. It was a situation that caused them to have that Jerusalem council. There was nothing like that. And later on, as we see, things started to branch into different places. And Paul started to give instruction. Other disciples started to give instruction. And that is what we have today. It can happen here. We just have to believe it. Yeah, you can see where prayer and fasting and sensitivity and hearing from God is absolutely essential. 
absolutely essential. In fact, we had a conversation yesterday. If, if someone has a strategic plan and everything went according to your strategic plan over the last two or three years, man, oh man, because the Holy Spirit of God ends up throwing things that were not in our strategic plan. They were not in our strategic plan. And that, was, that happened to the apostle Paul. His strategic plan was Bithynia. The Holy Spirit forbade him to go to Bithynia. I'm afraid in my ministry, I'll speak for me. I've told people, I'm afraid in my ministry, I've walked the streets of Bithynia. I've knocked on doors in Bithynia. I've tried to lead people to the Lord in Bithynia because I did not pray and fast and ask God and hear from him before I did something. I did something because I felt that I wanted to, you know, work for the Lord, but I, I cannot tell you that that came because I prayed and fasted and God spoke to me to do it. Those priorities are so important and I see them applicable. Now, if both of us, if we look down on that little screen down there mm -hmm. where it says 12.04, yeah. right. that's our deadline just so that we, we both will be looking at that uh, so that we have a deadline we're going to. I do want to get to this one. Uh, number five, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is enough. Here's the reason why ordinary people can do this. And by the way, there are church planters and disciple makers who, who started disciple making right after they <laughs> became a follower of Jesus. I mean, I mean with no training. Uh, they're using discovery Bible studies and, and, and uh, they got the training a little bit later. But uh, explain the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is enough. Uh, just quickly, we have a soccer team in our city called Bow Rangers. That's the name of the soccer team. Now, Bow Rangers was about 98% all Muslims. I really wanted to get to this team because I know soccer is a big thing. Now, I also play soccer, so I started training with them. I would go and do all the drills and everything. And after all the training, they would divide us into two teams. And I would play with the guys. And some of these guys, we... I mean, in soccer, it's different. I mean, it's not Bible studies. I mean, <laughs> soccer is soccer. For, you know, they'll tackle me because that's the rule of the game. I mean, they tackle me and I also tackle them in return. But my goal was to create the relationship in the soccer team and use it as a platform to reach out to them. I have bruises on my legs. But one day after one of the training, I took one of the coach. We went out to take what we call soft drink. You call it here soda. And I said, I really like your training. I like the way you coach people. I really love it. I said, I'm also a coach. And he said, really? I said, yes. I said, the only thing is I'm a spiritual coach. So if you can coach me physically, I also want to coach you spiritually. And he agreed. That's how our relationship started. Anytime he finished the physical coach, we'll do the spiritual coaching. When he grabbed this whole concept and he asked me to baptize him, and I did, he said, what am I going to do? I said, I want you to take it to the other coaches. It's not your own job to do the other coaches. So all of us will come and train, and he will do the coaches. I want you to know today that all the coaches, the senior coaches on Bow Rangers are followers of Jesus, and they're planting churches. And now the Bow Rangers team, 80% of the team are followers of Jesus. It's one of the most behaved team in my country right now. <laughs> they pray before games. 
in the field when they finish playing, they have a discovery Bible studies. As I speak to you right now, there's a big league going on in Bo. You know, they call it the City League. 20 teams are participating and it's organized by these coaches who have been trained. It's a platform to reach to more players. You have 20 teams around the country participating in that league as I speak to you right now. I did the kickoff before I came. And I will be there for the finals. And they're going to give out a trophy. And they WhatsApp me every day to see how many people God is bringing to himself using this soccer. That depend on the Holy Spirit and the word. I, I, I've said, I think in the, in the um, Reformation, we got the priesthood of the believer half right. We're working on the other half. The half we got right is that I do not need a priest to talk to God. I can talk directly through the advocacy of the Son, the help of the Holy Spirit. I can talk directly to my Father. The half we're still working on is my Father does not need an inter intermediary to speak to me. He can speak to me directly. All that he needs is the Word of God. And and there is a role for teaching, and absolutely, mm -hmm. uh, if we're not careful, we will overemphasize there is a role for that. But the reason ordinary people can do this is they really do believe that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is enough. That's it. In fact, DMM is really not a model. It's not an approach. It's not a fad. Uh, our friend in Ethiopia, Aichi, will say it's a brand new 2,000 year old idea. Yeah. Um, and so we, um, if we can just mention six and seven, uh, and, and he would love to expound on this. So if you see him, he will expound on this for you, but we're going to have to just mention them. Number six, disciple making must be intentional. This is one of his favorites. Wait a second. Because I'm not really sure that we got time to go into that. Let me just take one minute. Okay. All right. Take one. All right. I knew I couldn't. All right. You know, intentionality is very important. One thing I look at the life of Jesus, he never apologized for the things that the Father told him to do. He never apologized. Even when the Pharisees and the scribes were screaming, he said, do what my Father tells me to do. If you see me, you've seen the Father. And the Father won. I do not do these things on my own. It was intentionally planned by my father and designed in heaven. I'm following that spirit of intentionality. You know, I, I was criticized by a lot of people. Some people say it's a new cult. I mean, all type of names. Great. I kept on doing it. People criticized me. Some people wrote me very rough letters. Fine. I kept on doing it. I'm very intentional. And I tell you, I'm saying this I'm intentional. That's why you cannot be part of my leadership team if you are not making disciples or be involved in this process. You cannot. In fact, those on the worship, you cannot be the worship team, neither be a janitor in the church. You have to be making disciples. Very intentional. And I don't apologize for it. Because I know this is the heartbeat of God. All right, do we have number seven? Be catalytic. It's all about partnership. Uh, the, the truth is um, there have been uh, a, a lot of people who have come alongside 
and the, the kingdom of God uh, working as the body of Christ is an important thing. Do you have a minute for this? Can you do that we, in a we, we, It is so important that we have to walk through partners. I mean, that we can't do this work alone. We need people, like-minded people, who come alongside us and do this work. And that's what we've done in Sierra Leone. That's what we are doing in other countries. We have so many partners. Joseph was very recently in Nigeria again. When he was in the north of Nigeria, he was in um, Jaws. It was all true partners. Very recently, he went there with another, you know, to do training, all partners. We come alongside existing churches and we share the idea. And if they believe in it, we partner with them. We don't force anyone. Can I give a testimony there? They actually, from their ministry, are helping other denominations in Sierra Leone plant that denomination's churches. Uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing. Uh, for the sake of time, we're probably just going to have to stop, stop with that to get through a couple of things as we wrap up. Go to the next slide. Uh, this is something that you're going to, you, to see, and uh, we're going to be unpacking in the additional uh, breakout sessions that it starts with praying and fasting and then as God leads you somewhere, you have to connect to this people in some way and you serve them with purpose, whether that's sports or medical or dental or seed banks or agriculture or whatever it is, or, uh, you know, International Peace University, whatever it is, it's going to connect you. That is your serving with purpose. Then as you're serving, you're looking for persons of peace. These are people, Luke 10, that God is speaking to before you get there. They're open to a relationship with you. They're open to talk about spiritual things, and they're open eventually to getting in the Word of God. They are those gatekeepers. Just to say what there, we should believe, we must follow the pattern of Jesus. He was very relational, we all know. And I believe the gospel flies best on the wings of relationship. Relationship is key to this process. Yes. Then starting discovery groups. And in some of the sessions, we will probably unpack what a discovery Bible study is. We really don't have time to do that now, but the truth is everyone can do it. Everyone, the very first day that they come to Jesus, they can facilitate a discovery Bible study that day. Uh, then embracing multiplication, second generation, third generation, fourth generation. And that is why you get six to 7,000 churches. That's how that can happen. Now go to the next slide. A couple of things. Um, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking that we used when we created them. Uh, we have to think differently. There does need to be a paradigm shift and there needs to be one in North America. What that looks like is going to be by prayer and fasting. And some of you are going to figure that out. God's speaking to some of you. That's why you're here. He's connecting you with some seed that he's going to water. And honestly, you're going to come up with some of the keys that maybe are needed to see movements occur here. Uh, go to the last slide. And this is um, what we have not mentioned up to this point is in the early process of this, there was a very important person who was walking alongside Shadanke. His name was David Watson. He was the coach. He was coaching Shadanke. And there were, uh, in, in 30 seconds, describe what, what was happening in those early years with David. Um, uh, first, I followed him almost everywhere he went. I listened to him as he spoke. And we prayed together. We did trainings together. 
in many places. And um, he allowed me to fail in some of the things I did, and he encouraged me even in failure. And uh, he gave me the heart to believe that it can be done and I can do it. He helped me to see people the way God sees them. It don't matter who they are. And to believe in them. And so that coaching process happened. It would be in the dining hall. It would be as we travel on the road. It would be, you know, when, when he visits me in Sierra Leone, we sit under the tree. I remember one day I was saying, David, we want to reach out to this tribe. What would be the, 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 the what do you think would be a reasonable target of number of churches you think we'll plant? And David said, 1,000. I said, David, David, are you listening to me? He said, Shudanke, I'm listening to you. <laughs> he said, I'm not sleeping. But I have come to realize when we let go and allow God to sit on the throne, driving, leading us, and we obey, it is possible. It can be done. We are in the red for seven seconds, but let me just wrap this up in this sense. If you're going through a paradigm shift in thinking from an attractional model, knowledge-based, clergy-based, disciple-making from that model and you're changing that model, I urge you to find some people who can come alongside you, find a cohort of people who are doing this, pray together, have someone who can help coach. Uh, There are numerous people, please come see us. We would be very willing to help in that process, but we also would be willing to to connect with some other people as well. But uh, more of this will be unpacked in the next four sessions. And the next one is actually by Jerry Trousdale who wrote the book uh, that has just come out, uh, which is The Kingdom Unleashed, why these movements are not happening in North America. Why they're not happening. They're happening all over the world, folks, but they're not happening here. Why is that? Um, that will be the next session. So um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And uh, we will see you later. Blessings. You've been listening to a message from Final Command and their track called Disciple Making Movements, New Wineskins for North America. Make sure to grab your free digital download of the sampler that comes from one of their team members. It's called The Kingdom Unleashed, and you can download this at discipleship.org slash final command. In addition to this podcast, you'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.